Spider-Man. It was a powerful property. The eyes of the world were upon the Spider-Man. One of the most famous or infamous shows, depending on who you talk to, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark set a number of records, from most expensive show in Broadway history to most previews in Broadway history. From the injuries to the mixed reviews it received, the show left an indelible mark regardless of how you felt about it. But how did this happen? What was the story behind Spider-Man? 2002. Spider-Man, the motion picture from Sony Pictures, has hit the big screen. Directed by Evil Dead Sam Raimi and starring Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man, Kirsten Dunst as Mary Jane, and Willem Dafoe as the Green Goblin, the film is a massive success, making more than $780 million at the worldwide box office. With the character's newfound success, Marvel looks to bring the character to Broadway, tasking Tony Adams to produce. Adams, in turn, hires Bono and the Edge of the Grammy-winning band U2 to compose the score, and Julie Taymor, known for her work on the Lion King Broadway musical, also the most successful Broadway play in history, to direct Spider-Man. Spider-Man was huge because that that the Tobey Maguire movies had been a really huge deal. That was it was like the marvel of that period of movies. With great power comes great responsibility. I think people always uh, view theater, especially musical theater and superhero comics, as being incredibly, incredibly different in genres. Certainly, we think of them as having wildly different audiences, but to me, they're so much more similar than people give them credit for. They're, they're both art forms that adopt uh, these wildly unusual conventions, which they're criticized for. I was working in Italy, and my friend who was um, a co-dance captain with me was talking about it. He said, are you going to work on the Spider-Man show? And I said, what? And he said, there's going to be a Spider-Man show on Broadway. And um, I just kind of laughed. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't visualize it. What was going through my head was just kind of like, uh, whatever, well, I'll do anything these days. And um, it, didn't really, it didn't really become real until I heard some of the music. I think weight of expectations was so high because of uh, you know, Bono and the Edge doing the songs. Well, it's important for everybody um, who is present in the United States. So I think they they got it pretty right. They they got it right this time, and uh, you know it's not partisan. It doesn't have to be partisan. So, you know. That nonpartisan support raised one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to benefit the Rock the Vote campaign. Julie Taymor had acquired this reputation, deservedly, I think, after the Lion King, of someone who could bring a whole new vocabulary to. Spectacle. And the best new musical of 1998 is The Lion King. 
Julie Taymor is a goddess. We are eternally grateful for your courage, your passion, and the genius that is your. I, I love Julie Taymor's work. She's great. She's great. Uh, very passionate, and I don't mean that in a passive-aggressive way. She's extremely passionate and inspiring in that way. Um, she was lovely. She had her hands in everything from costume design to set design and props and and you know she she's done a lot of mask work and and Balinese theater and Shakespeare and she definitely helped construct all of these beautiful masks that we had to wear and she was really great what the idea is Spider-Man has lived since the 50s, I think. It's what, what is it about that comic that still has potency? The mythology, the reality of it, and I, I really adore the material. If people leave the theater thinking that what makes Peter Parker a superhero is his special powers, I think we've failed. Because I think what makes Peter Parker a superhero his personal integrity, something about him, a guy from Queens, a New Yorker, who puts people first, and that's the essence of his story. The actual story of Spider-Man was just extraordinary material for theater. It offered the opportunity to combine rock and roll with circus, with moving emotional drama. comic books and it, on page one of the ultimate Spider-Man is a reference to arachnid where they discuss the origin of the spider. What do we mean? Arachnids, arachnophobia. And they referenced the Greek myth and the origin of arachnids. And when I saw that, it was like a light bulb going off. The um, villain that Spider-Man the musical in invented, Arachne, that was one of Julie Taymor's big contributions to Spider-Man the Musical. I have a feeling that character and that moment were big parts of what Julie Taymor's vision for Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark was. Rackney was in a way uh, a sort of uh, stand-in for the director herself in this case, I think. She was this mysterious sort of governing artistic principle, uh, both erotic and, 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 and death. Eros and Venados, uh, who shaped uh, Spider-Man's dreams. The show itself has had its own near-death swoons, going back to the day in 2005 when the original producer, Tony Adams, arrived at Edge's apartment with the contracts. Bono and The Edge had met with Tony Adams to sign their, their names on the dotted line to do the Spider-Man musical, and Within 15 minutes, Tony had collapsed and died, which certainly was not a, a great harbinger for that product project. At minimum, I'm sure it delayed it by years and years and years. Um, but as we saw play out, it also meant that it got a new producer who did not have any Broadway experience. It was a very difficult moment for us, and, and we really weren't sure whether the show was gonna go ahead. Glenn Berger, 
uh, co-author of Spider-Man. I was hired to be Julie Seymour's co-writer on this project after the first writer, Neil Jordan, the famed filmmaker, dropped out. And um, I wound up, uh, they asked about nine playwrights to write um, a sample scene based on this kind of two-page vision statement that uh, Julie had written. And instead of uh, turning in a scene, I turned in a huge treatise on why I wouldn't turn in a scene because I thought it was a lousy idea. And that got me an interview, and I fell in love with Julie and have done anything. And what they wanted was a scene. So the next day, I turned in a scene, and it wound up being the scene that ended the first act of the musical. He seemed to be a, a very diligent guy and, and very uh, uh, hardworking and got along with Julie. And I had to get my uh, radio needle onto her frequency. They saw it as a, as we all did, as a, a, a vehicle for our, our highest uh, aspirations as artists. You know, uh, uh, the, the themes were um, mythic. You know, we weren't thinking of it in terms of, you know, the plastic balloons of Spider-Man. We we're thinking of it in terms of, you know, how this is, these stories have been going on since, you know, prehistory. You know, the, the mythic stories of humans with animal powers. Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark, original version. Written by Julie Taymor and Glenn Berger. Act 1. The play opens with the Green Goblin dropping Mary Jane off of a bridge, cackling. Spider-Man tries to shoot a web to save her, but can't. He leaps off in a last-ditch effort to save her. Just then, a group of adolescent kids appear narrating the show, called the Geek Chorus, a parody of a Greek chorus. The three geeks appear on a stage to reveal that the story we are about to witness is their attempt at creating a Spider-Man comic book. The geeks are joined by a girl, Miss Arrow, who is not particularly interested in comic books or Spider-Man. She tells them about the legend of Arachne, a woman who is an artist in ancient times and was exiled for her arrogance. Arachne, in a fit of despair, commits suicide, but is forced to live the rest of her life as a spider. In modern-day New York City, we meet Peter Parker, a young student interested in science. Bullied by his peers for his intelligence, he has a crush on Mary Jane, but feels powerless in his current situation. An orphan, Parker is raised by his Aunt May and Uncle Ben. Parker and his class go on a field trip to the lab of scientist Norman Osborn. Osborn and his wife, Emily, meet Parker who tell him of their plans to merge human DNA with animals to help the human race survive global warming. Unbeknownst to them, Arachne is a spider in Osborne's lab. Arachne chooses Peter to gain powers. The Geek Chorus explains that Arachne always planned for Parker to receive his spider powers. Parker re realizes that the spider that bit him gives him incredible abilities, such as strength, the ability to climb walls and shoot webs out of his hands. Parker uses his powers for selfish behavior initially, taking down the bullies who antagonized him and using his powers to win money at a wrestling match so he can buy a car to impress Mary Jane. After a criminal steals the car,
Parker refuses to help stop the thief, and Parker's Uncle Ben steps in to help instead. He's run over and killed, leaving Parker to blame for his uncle's murder. Arachne appears to Parker, telling him to rise above his problems and use the abilities she granted him for the greater good. Giving Parker a costume, he becomes Spider-Man, swinging across the city and solving crime. Parker, in need of money, agrees to get pictures for J. Jonah Jameson, a publisher for the Daily Bugle newspaper, who runs negative headlines about Spider-Man. Osborne reads about Spider-Man and believes that an employee of his must have stolen secrets to create a human with spider powers. He accelerates his research, testing on himself, his efforts lead to an explosion that kills his wife Emily and mutates him into a green monster. Taking the name Green Goblin, Osborne, now having gone insane, plays a piano atop the Chrysler building. He kidnaps Spider-Man, unmasking him and learning he is indeed Peter Parker, the boy he met in his lab. Parker tries to convince Osborne to stop, but Osborne blames Parker for the death of his wife reveals he has kidnapped Mary Jane as well, and that she is tied to the top of the Chrysler building, and that the rope will soon snap, causing her to fall to her death. It's at this moment where we see an epic fight between Spider-Man and the Green Goblin taking place above the heads of the audience. Using wire work and other equipment, we see the actors who play Peter Parker and the Green Goblin swinging above the audience's heads with Spider-Man jumping on and off the Green Goblin's back, often jumping into the audience and interacting with audience members. The fight eventually ends with the geeks deciding that the story will end with Spider-Man swinging a web around the Green Goblin, tying him to a piano, and pushing the piano off of the Chrysler building, killing the Green Goblin. Act 2. The Geek Chorus declares that with the Green Goblin dead, Spider-Man has won. Macero insists that Spider-Man must fight his greatest enemy, one he can't beat. The Geek Chorus then adds the Sinister Six to the story, a group of classic Spider-Man villains from various comics. The villains include Electro, a man who receives his powers from electricity and can electrocute his enemies. The Wizard, a giant lizard who used to be a human without an arm. Craven the Hunter, a man who hunts animals and eventually humans as well. Swarm, a Nazi scientist made of human bees. Carnage, made from an alien symbiote that created Spider-Man's enemy Venom. 
who is also a serial killer. And a new villain, Swiss Miss, a woman made out of human knives. Spider-Man instantly dispatches of all of them. He gains popularity throughout the city. As this happens, Parker grows tired of his life as Spider-Man, feeling it conflicts with his relationship with Mary Jane. Just then, Arachne appears to Parker in his dreams, confessing her love for him, and asking him to join her in another dimension where she is exiled to live. Parker wakes up and realizes that he's missed the debut of Mary Jane's Broadway show, The Fly, leading her breaking up with him. Fed up, Parker decides to no longer be Spider-Man, angering Arachne, who feels he is throwing away a gift she granted him. Jameson finds Spider-Man's costume in the trash and celebrates that he is gone for good. Parker reconciles with Mary Jane, but learns that the Green Goblin has somehow returned, despite previously being believed dead. The Goblin has teamed up with the Sinister Six, causing a blackout throughout New York City and leading to parts of the world being destroyed. The geek course disappears as we learn Arachne has taken control of the story. Parker proposes to Mary Jane, angering Arachne, who reveals that the blackout, the destruction of the city, and the return of the Green Goblin were all illusions that she created. She summons a group of spiders in high heels and proclaims that she must loot every shoe store in New York City in order to get to Earth to carry out her plan, leading to a massive musical number featuring spiders in shoes. Parker regrets that he chose not to be Spider-Man anymore. Mary Jane, feeling he is disturbed, tells him she will always stand beside him, but is then kidnapped by the Sinister Six. Parker accepts that he will always be Spider-Man and steals his costume back from Jameson. However, the Green Goblin reveals that Parker no longer has his special abilities. Parker manages to defeat the Sinister Six without his powers, but is unable to stop them from blowing up New York City. The opening scene where Spider-Man jumps to his death trying to save Mary Jane happens. Just then, Peter Parker is brought to the dimension where Arachne is. Arachne reveals she created the illusions of the city being destroyed, the Green Goblin reappearing, and him losing his powers. She threatens to suffocate Mary Jane with a web if Parker does not agree to join her in this dimension. At this point, a giant web would appear above the audience's heads, leading to a giant climactic fight between Spider-Man and Arachne atop the web. Spider-Man defeats Arachne, but Arachne refuses to relent, telling Parker he'll have to kill her in order to save Mary Jane. Unable to do this, Parker instead agrees to join Arachne in exchange for Mary Jane's life. Arachne, realizing Parker's love for Mary Jane, frees both of them. This act allows her to finally die and go to heaven on the noose that she hanged herself on. Parker reveals to Mary Jane that he is indeed Spider-Man. As the sirens wail, he swings off, ending the show. Well, I've been involved in optics most of my life and holography. I started repairing televisions when I was six years old. So I was very familiar with TV and know how it worked. But back in those days, TV was a CRT system and it had a big tube and it was also limited in size. 
back in 68, I got the idea of making a television system that didn't have the limit of size. And it wasn't by making a bigger tube. It was by using the idea of a projector, like a slide projector or a movie projector. But instead of the film that's in those projectors, there would be an electronic slide that would show video. And of course, there was nothing like that. So I invented one, a way to do it. And I wrote my first patent application in 1968. And I was in college at the time. My name is Gene Dolgoff, and I'm an inventor and the CEO of my company, Holobeam Technologies, Inc. Um, I've been involved in 3D displays since the uh, 1950s when I was a little kid. I, I finally was contacted by a guy uh, in the uh, 90s. This is after I left my uh, projection TV company. And he, he's a Broadway producer. And he said, I read about you and that you're doing 3D and I, I want to use it to make 3D scenery and people projected on stage and maybe floating off the stage and I want to work with you. So his name is Mel Howard and he's a Broadway producer and he's done lots and lots of shows. So we became good friends and then we became partners. And um, I had built this system, which was the biggest 3D display I had made so far. And it essentially could project an image of a life-size person floating in the air several feet in front of the system. And um, so we were working on different commercial applications for that. And then uh, one day he told me one of his friends, Julie Taymor, was interested in using the effect in a show. So she came to my lab and brought a lot of people from her team and we showed them the uh, presentation and they all stood back and watched this image of a person coming out and talking to everybody and things floating in the air and uh, interesting stuff that I had put together to demonstrate this. And she said, well, I'm planning on doing the Spider-Man show and we want to have Spider-Man floating over the stage and over the audience and maybe this could do it. And I said, oh yeah, this definitely could do it. So we started uh, planning on it and we had weekly meetings, uh, more, than, more than once a week. And we went over the script and we came up with different effects, but mainly it was Julie. I mean, she, she's so creative and she kept coming up with different ideas of what effect should be where and when and so on. And we worked on that for quite a long time. And then at some point, she got rid of some other kind of a technology, which really wasn't that at all. And it wasn't sophisticated, but she decided she'd go with that instead. And so my involvement in it ended. We didn't see much at the beginning of rehearsals. I don't think we had some pre-production. So we were working once the uh, once the cast was hired, we started working right away on the dance numbers and we were working in a studio at 890 broadway in manhattan near union square and so we were just working there for a while eventually like full production started up and we had a big orientation uh, with julie Taymor and and all of the 
the art the artists and the contributors and they had all the costume pieces and designs and everything and set pieces up and it was really mind-blowing i mean i'd never seen anything like it it's one of the show's finer things is the set i'm ari loeb i was a dance captain and swing performer on spider-man turn off the dark spider-man opened with this really breathtaking visual moment of um these spider women doing this giant weaving loom thing on the stage they were like on these silk swings and then there would be these other silk fabric pieces that would go up so that they would be they the a tapestry would weave as they were swinging back and forth got this loom working and it's amazing. The loom is amazing. The loom is yeah. amazing. That's One spectacular visual effect that involved looking at New York from the top of the Chrysler building. Uh, it was a gorgeous coup de théâtre, as they say. The designer George Seepin and I have worked together four or five times. He's an extraordinary designer and what we talked about and what he's created was the notion of real pop-up sets. You'll have an experience in front of you, above you, behind you, on the sides. You as an audience will feel as you're flying through space. I'm trying to make the theatrical experience a um, environmental experience. We want to have the, the theater of it right in the laps. The real box office draw, the three talents behind the scenes. So tell us about the collaboration. It was like being like a student in a master class of, of <laughs> musical theater and, and opera, and it was just, I went to law. helped as well. <laughs> I, mean. I was more seduced by than the, wow, you know, a startling. I was more seduced by uh, Julie and Bono and Edge's, um, seriously, their artistic commitment. Like, man, they, they were like cool and happy and more energized and more happy than, than they are any other time when they're discussing art. It was conceived in a, in a call it a naive idealism um, for, for what this show is going to be. We were going to open hearts and blow minds. I come from very non-commercial roots experimental theater, uh, I still would say that's what I'm doing. Even in a blockbuster like Spider-Man, there's a lot of experimentation. And I love still it when people say, what a horrible, lousy idea. I think that's great. <laughs> I hate the comfort zone, let's put it that way. If you don't have fear, then you're not taking a chance. But what I do have is a team. If your collaborators are there, which is what answers the fear question, 
and they all are as impassioned as you are and believe in it, your fear is mitigated. We actually thought we'd be broadcasting this story about a year ago. We've been invited to go behind the scenes with Bono, The Edge, and director Julie Taymor. But one day last year, the show ran out of money. The opening had to be canceled. It's a $50 million show, I think the most expensive musical in the history of Broadway, and they didn't bother to raise the money. Isn't that great? <laughs> Putting on a show and, whoops, forgot to raise the money. How did you find out that things were in such bad condition? Read about it in uh, the New York Post. It? You did not know how bad things were till you opened the newspaper? That is the truth. So everything goes dark and, and ev the rest of the world thinks it's over. And you start picking up the phone, calling people for money, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and they are saying, are you, no. No, they're saying, maybe. Everything was messed up. The man Bono finally turned to was Michael Cole, longtime rock concert impresario who used to promote U2. Bono leaned on him and he agreed to become the new producer and raise more than $30 million to get the show back on track. It was uh, the most expensive, I think probably remains the most expensive musical on Broadway, the $75 million budget. mishap when they did a press preview early in the in the Spider-Man process before it went to Broadway where they tested that that big moment with the big Spider-Man jump at the end of act 2 with a gigantic web descending from the flies uh, over the audience's head in this great big cylinder that was going to be over your heads and the last um, the last scene of this show was going to be this epic fight climbing on the, and this is stuff that we had already worked out in the Los Angeles oh. <laughs> um, workshop. It, we had worked it out, and it looked, it was the thing that was going to top the end of Act One, <laughs> and it didn't work. And then, like a week before our first preview, we're told, uh, nah. If you're thinking they could get hurt doing that, oh you're God. right. Two of the flying actors were injured in rehearsals, one breaking his wrists. We weren't ready when we started our first preview. Technically, we had no ending. The scenery didn't work. I think all of us knew, and we said, we're not ready to, to, to preview. But I would never say, I can't do it. The curtain goes up for previews tonight on Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark, a Broadway show with music by Bono and The Edge of U2.
some of the stunts and flying hadn't been completely finished. So what you saw in sort of those first early weeks were all of these starts and stops. The show would stop four or five times so they could fix something. One point there was a technical glitch, and I believe that was what I began my review with, uh, where uh, Spider-Man had to vamp by drinking champagne, and Patrick Page, who was the best reason to see the show, who played the Green Goblin, uh, started making jokes about uh, what was going on. He said, you know, you're going to have to fly soon. you got to be careful. They're dropping them here. And uh, and the audience was thrilled. That was, And you realize that was why they had come to it. They'd come to see the car crash. The Broadway show became a part of the national conversation. It was the regular bout of uh, punchlines on, um, on late-night talk shows. Hello, I'm Frank Gublin, attorney at law. And at Gublin & Green, we specialize in assisting clients who have sustained injuries while working at or attending the Broadway musical Spider-Man Turn Off the Dog. Uh, there was even a Law and Order episode in which Cynthia Nixon played a Julie Taymor figure. I sent Bono a congratulatory cable, but it snapped. Thanks. Couldn't help it. Couldn't help it. It hasn't even opened yet, but there has been another accident for the most expensive Broadway musical ever. It made news in a way Broadway shows seldom do anymore uh, because of the casualties. The, uh, the prospect that, you know, a death might occur right in front of you with someone falling from the sky. These images obtained by the New York Times show the very moment when the cord harnessing the actor snaps before he then free falls into the pit below. In December, Tierney was in a life-threatening accident, falling 30 feet below the stage. Broke three vertebrae, four ribs, my skull, my scapula, and my elbow. You got some pretty good scars out yeah, of that here. Yeah. I know things go wrong, and when you've got thin wires and you've got people flying over the audience, not only can the actors get hurt, but the audience can get hurt. And it's, uh, to me, it just was too risky. It's just the latest in a string of accidents and injuries that have plagued the show in recent weeks. In a little over a month, one actress suffered a concussion, while two other actors were injured during a flying sequence. But this show is going to have obviously the longest gestation period in history. I think Nick and Nora, remember that one? Yeah. Had 71 previews. <clears throat> this is obviously going to go near the 100 mark if it even opens on March 15th. A number of us, the, the major critics, broke the embargo at one point um, because it had been in previews for longer than than any show, I think, in Broadway history. I think it surpassed Merlin, which held the, the previous record. Um, but it had been in some, I think, 180 plus previews. I mean, usually it's a matter of just a three weeks tops for previews for a, for a Broadway show, uh, maybe a month. Um, so at one point, we all sort of decided together, okay, we're going to do this. And um, so we went in. It wasn't ready. I don't think it ever would have been ready. I've never read quite so horrific reviews. Things like the New York Times, it may rank among the worst musicals ever made. Uh, a decade later, after all the shows you've reviewed, do you still think it ranks amongst one of the worst, at least the original version? Unquestionably. It just, it was a mess. I mean, to put it as simply as possible, the elements, and there were many um, uh, extraordinary elements, but they didn't cohere in any way. I still have no idea what was supposed to be happening most of the time. 
it was really, really hard to follow. I think there are a lot of interesting things you could do with that, with a lot of characters, but Spider-Man as such a grounded street-level hero, when you start tying him more into myth and destiny, I think gets away from a lot of what people find most interesting at the core of the character. The original version was meant to be, I don't know, sort of a, a meta Spider-Man. Um, it had a, uh, a group of, um, I think, four actors who were the geek chorus who reflected as, as fans might, as hardcore as Spider-Man fans might, on what was going on and the philosophical, philosophical significance of it and Spider-Man is a depressing character. Eight. What happens to free will? remember was there was a scene where a large pile of shoes came out from stage right on a truck and there were lots of women and they all had shoes i think it had something to do with arachne the show and, and realizing oh wow we've got more work ahead of us than anyone realizes I had made certain suggestions about you know buying some time there was certain things that we could do um, relatively painless cuts and things that um, could at least buy us some time and um, and maybe buy us more than time maybe we could get us to opening night and we could just do you know like what wicked did which was to continue to improve the show and maybe we can get another web net you know that worked you know <laughs> another eventually. million dollars <laughs> <laughs> and we need to buy some time because we were we were fast approaching the point of no return you know i'd made some uh, suggestions to julie and that didn't go well um, julie would not accept this but you know she got very close to it so close perhaps that she couldn't see it and we were going out and coming back and we could see very clearly what we thought were the problems and she didn't think they were as big a problem as, as we did. Plan X, which it came to be called, and was this idea of basically of moving um, our, the climax of the first act to the end of the show instead. I'm still very proud of what I did with my collaborators. I'm very proud. The psychology gets very interesting. <laughs> you, you know, in a, in a, it was almost a lab situation where it's like, let's turn up the heat a little and see how these mice react now. <laughs> you know, let's, let's crowd the cage with, like, let's, let's poke them with sticks and see, <laughs> see how they act. I think I, it, it, we, we had gone far beyond uh, normal um, human situations <laughs> and consequently, uh, I, I don't think anybody, you know, Julie, anybody was acting like they would act if, if, if we were just in a you know, normal uh, uh, environment. After we did weigh in, it closed down for a certain amount of time, and then it was reincarnated after uh, um, in another form altogether. And um, we um, we went back to see it. I think when we were officially allowed in the second time, it was several months later, and it was it was marginally better. It made sense at least. They eliminated the geek chorus. When the actors uh, were asked to leave the show. 
It was very sad. Also, a lot of creatives were asked to leave. A lot of directors, wink, wink, were asked to leave. Producers for the troubled Spider-Man musical are confirming that the director, Julie Taymor, is out. She has been relieved of her duties as of last night. They're going to bring in a uh, new director who's going to try to rewrite that script. She did introduce a new vocabulary and did it very successful, and The Lion King will probably be running after we're dead, so uh, you have to give her kudos for that. Julie's an incredible artist, uh, really a very gifted girl. Even a, even a bad experience becomes a notch on your on your belt. Finally, one of the biggest financial bets or busts in the history of theater is taking form as a musical about the comic book hero Spider-Man. After months of expense and controversy, it's finally scheduled to open on Broadway tonight. Patrick Page, his performance as the Green Goblin, got a lot of, it got a decent amount of praise during the original run, <laughs> and they made him a bigger part of the second version. Do you think, as somebody who saw both versions, do you think that that was the right move for them to give him a bigger part in the second Well, sure. Version? I mean, uh, yeah, if you're going with your strengths, he was the only discernible strength in the first version. If you're looking for a night out on the town, you just found me. I'm a $65 million circus tragedy. role where she became more a more sort of benevolent mentor i think the geek chorus was gone it was it was a more classic comic book uh interpretation and uh that's probably what you know the younger fans at least at least wanted not all this sort of self-reflection and um uh meta uh philosophical ponderings of, of of what it all meant and what the character meant and how he responded to it Julie Taymor sues Michael Cole, producer of Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, claiming that he failed to pay her the proper royalties she was agreed to to be director of the show.
In turn, Michael Cole countersues Julie Taymor, arguing that she breached her contract. Eventually, the two come to a settlement, and Julie Taymor is forever credited as the director of Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. In January of 2014, after three years on Broadway, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark finally shutters its doors for good, citing a lack of injury insurance and a loss of money. When all is said and done, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark was said to have lost producers more than $50 million, making Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark the biggest flop in Broadway history. I just really loved it. Looking back, I made a lot of friends. I loved uh, studying the music. I'm not a musician, but I love music. And, and uh, so being in all the musical rehearsals and uh, getting to know the music directors, listening to everyone sing, I think singing is amazing. And that was just, it was really beautiful. We had a piano room downstairs that we would rehearse in. And for me, when I look back, my fondest memory is all of the music that was made down in the basement and in the studios and on stage. That was really a rush for me. It was a really incredible show for that reason. I mean, I don't think there are lessons, really. Um, if that were the case, then people wouldn't keep making mistakes and, and creating Broadway musicals. Um, around the time, um, we were still waiting, waiting, waiting to see when the um, they'd let critics into Spider-Man in early 2011. I went to a, a play next door at the New Victory Theater. It was the Fiasco Theater Troops production of Shakespeare's Cymbeline with a cast of maybe six, or was it only four? It was a tiny, tiny cast. Uh, and with nothing more than a, a trunk and uh, a bed sheet. And it was absolutely enchanting. And it summoned this fantastical world for you. Um, so. I guess if there's any lesson, if you compare those two shows, is that you you don't have to have um, $75 million worth of, um, of gimmicks to, um, to create enchantment. I'm going to tell you a story that was so astounding to me when I was in Bali. I'd been performing with a troupe, circling a volcano, came to a village that was having a ceremony that they have every five years as an initiation ceremony to initiate the young men into adulthood. I was alone for a moment in this village square under a giant banyan tree, one of the kinds of trees that have the roots that go into the ground. And it was, this, this is Trunyan, way up in what's called the Baliasri, which are the original Balinese. And I was sitting under this tree, just resting, listening to a kind of Charles Ivesian concert of gamelan orchestras from all the different villagers who had brought their, their orchestras for these ceremonies, under the full moon. And I sat there just in quiet for a while. And all of a sudden, in the dark, from the rear of that, of that space, I saw the glint of mirrors, and out of this darkness emerged, I don't know, could have been 20 old men in full warrior costume, 
with the mirrors all over their costumes. I, there was nobody around me. There was nobody at all. I was alone in that square. And these men came, and I had seen those men earlier, and they were like this, and now they were like that. And they started to dance and move and come along into that square. No light, no audience, just me hidden in the shadows. And from deep within their bellies, these sounds came out. And for an eternity, because what is time after all but how you feel it, for an eternity, I was mesmerized and they performed just under the full moon. And I could only see by that reflecting off of these mirrors. Well, after they finished performing to nobody, they disappeared into the shadows. And out came a young man with a propane lantern and hung it up on a tree. And then the entire village square filled with people and the curtain was put up and the children and the, and the salesmen for all of the juices and whatever to drink, the celery juice or whatever, they came out and for the next nine hours all night they did an, an opera. But they had lights, they had the propane lanterns and the audience would cheer and laugh and have a whole existence. Who were those people performing for before that? I'd, I'd been in theater all my life, really, all my life, even in the backyard, and, you know, on the trees in the garage. And it really, really made me think they were performing for God. Check it every single time. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you a hedge fund? Why are you a this? Why are you a, an actor? Why are you a teacher of literature? Why, what is it that motivates you? Because those people weren't getting reviews, they weren't getting money, they weren't getting adulation, they were doing it. Were they forced into it? I don't know, but I know that the incredible movement that I saw in the music was so inspiring and so, so profoundly uh, detailed that it had to be something else. And that I brought home with me. Special thanks to Ben Brantley, Ari Loeb, Logan Colwell Block, Gene Dolgoff, and William Aerosmith for their interviews. Some of the footage is property of Marvel Entertainment, Sony Pictures, CBS, PBS, ABC, Broadway.com, CUNY TV, and Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, and is used for this podcast for the sake of archival and fair use purposes. Also, thanks to Atten Piano for the cover of his Spider-Man theme song. <laughs>